uh, Vratislas the first, who was Duke of Bohemia. So many slosses. <laughs> well, it's Czech, so <laughs> slos, 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 slos. They should have called it the Slos Republic. Anyway, so Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. Really long time ago. I'm decently long ago as well. Oh, I'm like way the heck back. <laughs> what is way the heck back? 9.35. Oh, yeah, that stomps me out with my 1889. <laughs> I even have like a prelude, like it goes earlier than 1889, but it's not as early as 900s. Nope. Uh, we like swapped places from when you were in Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that was even earlier, but anyway. Sucker, I got the record. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do have an update. Um, so last time I talked about, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I wasn't prepared to have to supply your update. <laughs> I was talking about the Hobbit, and we talked about the princess, the princess and the goblin. That is the um, book that influenced it, that became a movie that I was talking about, and you wanted to know if it was related to the Black Cauldron. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I actually did look into it. And it is not, so the Princess and the Goblin, no, the Black Cauldron is not based off the Princess and the Goblin. It is, however, roughly based on the first two books in the Chronicles of Prydian, or Prydain, which are a series of books by Lloyd Alexander. Who is? An author. (laughs) I mean, I know a person who writes books is an author who's Lloyd Alexander. Um, oh man, hold up. I recognize the name. Well, apparently you don't recognize the name either. <laughs> Making fun of me there. Backfired, didn't it? Yes. Yes, it did. <laughs> um, the Book of Three. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> I'm just relishing in my victory here <laughs> as she scrolls through lots and lots of books. Oh my gosh. Trying to find Why anything. is this so difficult? Well, you know what? I got really excited when I saw Lloyd Alexander. And apparently I don't know why. So that's fine. <laughs> Whatever. I quit the podcast. Hi, and that's our Oop. show. As always, I'm your halfwit. At, or as this time, Kylie's your halfwit. Oh. Okay, so my event takes place on September 28th, 935. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Fine. <laughs> um, so we've all heard the Christmas Carol about Good King Winslet, right? No. <laughs> Are you going to make me sing it? Apparently, because I've never heard this. Damn. All right. Okay. So, um, Jesus. <laughs> I was not prepared for this. Um, Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even, brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. When a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. No. Nope. Not ringing any bells? Not at all. Well, this is less... No, no jingle bells rung in that song. <laughs> this is less climactic than I had hoped. <laughs> well, anyway, it is 
a um, fairly popular Christmas carol. Not the most popular, obviously. But um, I will get to, at the end, it's had some pretty good covers done. So, whatever. You're apparently a loser. Um, so, Good King Winslet is a Christmas carol that tells a story of a bohemian king going on a journey and braving harsh winter weather to give alms to a poor peasant on the feast of St. Stephen, which is December 26th, so the day after Christmas. Okay. Um, during the journey, his page is about to give up the struggle against the cold weather, but is enabled to continue by following the king's foot, footprints step for step through the deep snow. Okay. So they make it to the poor person, I'm assuming. Um, and so some people may be surprised to learn that Wenceslas was a real person. What a name. Yeah, I know. Um, and the carol is actually based on the life of the historical Saint Wenceslas I, Duke of Bohemia. And on September 28th, 935, he was murdered by his brother, Boleslas. Lots of losses. But we'll get back to that one. <laughs> Um, Wenceslas was born sometime in 9-11. Um, I'm literally going to crack up every time you say Wenceslas. I'm going to hurt you every no, time you laugh at me. You're not saying it wrong, I'm assuming. It's just no, every time I hear it, my brain just hears sauce, 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 I mean, look, look at it. There's a lot of C's and S's in that sauce, sauce, sauce. <laughs> um, Anyway, okay, so he was born sometime in 911, and he was the eldest son of... Uh, Vratislas the first, who was Duke of Bohemia. So many slosses. <laughs> well, it's Czech, so. <laughs> slos, 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 slos. They should have called it the Slos Republic. Anyway, so Czechoslovakia. <laughs> okay, so he was cheese. Uh, he was the oldest son of um, Vratislas the first, Duke of Bohemia, and Dramira. I'm At least it wasn't Dramislas. <laughs> Dramira, who was the daughter of a pagan tribal chief of the Haveli, who was um, then baptized at the time of her marriage to Ratislas. Ratislas? <laughs> Is this just Pokemon evolutions? <laughs> it kind of feels like it. His paternal grandmother, Ludmila of Bohemia, saw to it that he was educated in the old Slavonic language, and at an early age, he was sent to the college at Budek. In 921, when he was about 13 years old, his father died and his grandmother became regent because he wasn't of age to rule on his own yet. Um, so jealous of the influence that Ludmilla wielded over Wenceslas, his mother arranged to have her killed. Um, Ludmilla was at um, Tetin Castle near Berun, where assassins murdered her on September 15th, 921. Oof. And she is said to have been strangled by them with her veil. Interesting. Yeah. That, that's great. I'm not wearing a veil anytime soon. <clears throat> uh, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Who says? <laughs> okay, I guess I just need to leave now. <laughs> you don't have to wear a veil at a wedding. It's traditional, but you don't have to. Okay. Anyway, um, so she was first buried in the church of St. Michael um, at Teton, but her remains were later removed, um, most likely by Wenceslas, to the Church of St. George in Prague, um, which had been built by his father. His mother then assumed the role of regent and immediately initiated measurements against the Christians, as she was the daughter of the pagan tribal chief, right? When um, Wenceslas was 18, those Christian nobles who remained um, who remained rebelled against his mother with him, and the uprising was successful, and she was sent into exile. So, goodbye, Mom. See you, Mama. Yep. But now he's of age to rule by himself, so we... What age was that? 18. 
Um, so after a very tumultuous childhood, Wenceslas got the support of his nobles and assumed control of the government as the Duke of Bohemia. And to prevent issues with his brother, they allocated Boleslas a considerable territory. And as you can probably figure out, it didn't really work. Wenceslas's father, Vratislas, had forged an alliance with the Bavarian Duke Arnulf to defend against the um, continuous raids by Magyars and the forces of the Saxon Duke and East Frankish King Henry the Fowler. And the alliance became worthless, however, when Arnulf and Henry reconciled in, 1920, in 921. Was Henry the Fowler known because he was more foul than a previous Henry, or did he just like birds a lot? Well, he was Henry the First, so I'm going with the birds. The birds. Yeah. Okay. I'm going with the birds. <laughs> um, I'm the bird king. <laughs> I my, my assumption is that it was based off, like, a love of hunting, but we'll go with bird king. That's fine. Bird king Henry. <laughs> um, in early 929, the joint forces of Duke Arnulf and... King Henry reached Prague in a sudden attack that forced Wenceslas to resume the payment of a tribute first imposed by the East Frankish King Arnulf of Carinthia. That's the word. In 895. So he hadn't been paying these payments because of the alliance. And then when they reconciled, um, he basically got the shaft and had to start paying again. <laughs> yep. Um, in September of 935, a group of um, allies... Oh, a group of nobles allied with Wenceslas's younger brother, Boleslas, and plotted to kill Wenceslas. <laughs> um, after Boleslas invited Wenceslas to the feast of Saint, um, Saints Cosmas and Damien in Stara Boleslav, um, three of his companions fell on the duke and stabbed him. And as the duke fell, Boleslas ran him through with a lance. And interestingly enough, according to Cosmas of Prague in his Chronica Boreum, of the early 12th century, one of Boleslas's sons was born on the on the day of Wenceslas's death. What so was the son's name? It didn't. My, I didn't find it. Clearly, he didn't do anything of note. <laughs> I wasn't looking for note. I was looking for another Slas. Oh, I mean, it was probably like Bosislas II or Boleslas II. They all named them after each other, like... Maybe it was Nicol Boleslas. No, it was not. <laughs> Your nerd is showing. Um, so because of the ominous circumstances of his birth... Oh, wait, hold up. The name, the kid's name is in here. <laughs> I thought you were about to say, wait, hold up, it is Nicol. No, it's not. Um, because of the ominous circumstances of his birth, the infant was named Strakvas, which means a dreadful feast. So no slosses. He almost had a sloss in there. Almost. And arguably the V could be an S because I keep seeing Wenceslas and Boleslav spelt with a V at the end. So arguably it could be Straxas, which is way worse. <laughs> so. <laughs> Wait, so would it be Boleslav? Yes. If it was a V? Yeah. And Wenceslav. That sounds much more right. Because they were Slavic. It's, the, it, it's Slav. Czech pronunciation versus English pronunciation. Oh, I can English buy that. English does the S's. Um, Czech does the V's. Um, so they are Czech, so I guess technically it is the V. But I speak English, so... so yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, the kid's name meant Dreadful Feast, so that's fun. There's um, also a tradition that St. Wenceslas' loyal servant... 
Potavin or Potasin, I guess, would be the other option. <laughs> Avenged his death by killing one of the chief conspirators, but was then executed by Boleslaus. Um, so, you know, they tried. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you may be wondering why the Carol is good king, Wenceslas, and I've only referred to him as a duke. Although he was only a duke during his lifetime, the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I posthumously conferred on Wenceslas the regal dignity and title, which is why he is then referred to as king in legend and song. And a little fun fact, Otto I was the oldest son of Henry the Fowler and his wife Matilda. So the son of his enemy saw him as a leader worthy of being called a king. There you go. Yeah, pretty good job, dude. Yeah. Um, and as far as I can tell, he was like a super kind, like generally kind and like good leader, hence the good part. Um, Wenceslas was considered a martyr and saint immediately after his death when a cult of um, when the cult of Wenceslas grew up in Bohemia and in, and in England. Fun fact: um, within a decade, four biographies of him were in circulation. Um, and so they're called hagiographies because any, like, biography of, like, a saint or, like, religious person is called a hagiography. Okay. I'm not entirely sure why, but it is. Probably to differentiate, like, the merit behind it. I, I guess. So the hagiographies had a powerful influence on the High Middle Ages concept of the Rex Justus, or a righteous king, who was a monarch whose power stems mainly from his great piety as well as his princely vigor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chronicler Cosmos of Prague wrote about Wenceslas, <clears throat> but his deeds I think you know better than I could tell you, for as, as is read in his passion, no one doubts that rising every night from his noble bed with bare feet in only one chamberlain, he went around to God's churches and gave alms generously to widows, orphans, those in prison and afflicted by every difficulty, so much so that he was considered not a prince, but the father of all the wretched." That's a title and a half. I know, right? Father of all the wretched. Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly he earned it since instead of sleeping, he went and gave his money away to the poor and those in need. So that's pretty nice. So several centuries after this legend was asserted at, at the legend uh, um, that Cos- Cosmos of Prague wrote about with him giving out all the alms and stuff, mm-hmm. um, it was asserted as fact by, fact by Pope Pius II, um, which kind of cemented him as a saint. Yeah. Wenceslas' feast day is celebrated on September 28th, you know, the day he was murdered. <clears throat> on this day, celebrations and a pilgrimage are held in the city of Stara Boleslav. While the translation of his relics, which took place in 938, is commemorated on March 4th. And since 2000, the September 28th feast day is a public holiday in the Czech Republic and is celebrated as Czech Statehood Day. So he's a pretty big deal there. Yeah. Nice. Yep. And you don't know. You've never heard the song. No. Shame on you. I'm sorry. So beyond the Christmas carol, there are a couple of legends surrounding Wenceslas. One legend claims that one Count Radislas rose in rebellion and marched against him. Um, Wenceslas sent a deputation with offers of peace, but Radislas viewed this as a sign of cowardice. The two armies were drawn up opposite each other in, bat- in um, battle array when Wenceslas, to avoid shedding innocent blood, challenged Radislas to single combat. As Radislas advanced towards the king, he saw by Wenceslas' side two angels who then cried, Stand off. Um, so thunderstruck, Radislas repented his rebellion, threw himself from his horse at the saint's feet, and asked for a pardon. Wenceslas then raised him and kindly received him again into favor. Nice. Yeah, good job. Good king. Yep. 
Um, so there's a second enduring legend that claims an army of knights sleep, sleep under Blanick, a mountain in the Czech Republic. They will awake and, under the command of Saint Wenceslas, bring aid to the Czech people in their the time of ultimate danger. There's a similar legend in Prague, which says that when the motherland is in danger or in its darkest times and close to ruin, the equestrian statue of King Wenceslas in Wenceslas Square will come to life and raise the army sleeping in Blanik. And upon crossing the Charles Bridge, his horse will stumble and trip over a stone, revealing the legendary sword of Brunkvik. Close enough. Um, and with this sword, King Wenceslas will slay all the enemies of the Czechs, bringing peace and prosperity to the land. And um, Ogden Nash wrote a comic, comic epic poem, The Christmas That Almost Wasn't, which was loosely based on the same legend, in which a boy awakens Wenceslas and his knights to save a kingdom from usurpers who have outlawed Christmas. Hmm. Yeah, I was like, that's fun. <laughs> so about that Christmas carol. Um, the tune itself is that of Tempest Addis... Ooh, Tempest Addist Floridum, which translates to It Is Time for Flowering, which is a 13th century spring carol first published in the Finnish book, songbook Pae Cantione. Yeah, Pae Cantione, I think, in 1582. And the text is all about spring coming and the rebirth of the earth, and it was traditionally published and sung around Easter. Okay. So the text of the Christmas carol, most of us but not you are familiar with was published by John Mason Neal in 1853 although he um, some people think he might have written it earlier because he um, repeated the legend of St. Wenceslas in um, his book Deeds of Faith which was published in 1849 so it's possible that they were kind of around the same time Um, Neal's version is as I said before, about King Wenceslas and his page setting out in the snow to bring supplies to a poor peasant. And on the journey, his page almost gives up, but is able to follow the king's footsteps through the snow. And I've always assumed that they make it to the peasant successfully, but the song actually doesn't specify. Like, I oh. read all the verses, and it just, it it doesn't technically say, but I, I think that's, like, the assumption. Head to the peasant. <laughs> um... And apparently, academics are not particularly fond of Neil's text and the change from Easter to Christmas. Um, so someone named H.J.L.J. Massey wrote in 1921, Why, for instance, do we tolerate such impositions as Good King Wenceslas? The original was and is an Easter hymn. It is marked in carol books as traditional, a delightful word which often conceals ignorance. There is nothing traditional in it as a carol. Yikes, I know. They were heated. Yeah, no, they were unhappy. Um, And the editors of the 1928 Oxford Book of Carols were even more critical. And they said, This rather confused narrative owes its popularity to the delightful tune, which is that of a spring carol. Unfortunately, Neil in 1953 substituted for the spring carol this good King Wenceslas, one of his less happy pieces. The time has not yet come for a comprehensive book to discard it, but we reprint the tune in its proper setting, not without hope, that with the present wealth of carols for Christmas, good King Wenceslas may gradually pass into disuse and the tune be restored to springtime. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Um, So last one, Elizabeth um, Poston in the Penguin Book of Christmas Carols referred to it as the product of an unnatural marriage between Victorian whimsy and the 13th century dance carol. She goes on to detail how Neil's ponderous moral dodgerel does not fit the lighthearted dance measure of the original tune, and that if performed in the correct manner, sounds ridiculous to pseudo-religious words. 
So not a whole lot of love for uh, poor King, poor Neil or King Wenceslas. No. <laughs> yeah. No, apparently no one really likes it. Um, I feel like I have to confess, I never heard the original Spring Carol, so I only know King Wenceslas. But, so it sounds fine to me. <laughs> um, so despite the fondest hopes of the Oxford publishers, good King Wenceslas has persevered. It may not be the most popular Christmas carol out there, but it has been covered by Mannheim Steamroller, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, the Piano Guys, and the Beatles. Neat. Additionally, it's appeared in the film Love Actually, where Prime Minister David, um, who's played by Hugh Grant, sings the carol at the home of three small girls to explain his presence there while he is knocking on doors, randomly searching for his love interest. Have you seen Love Actually? Yes, but I don't really remember it that well. Okay, well, he's knocking on doors to, like, try and figure out where this girl lives and three little girls answer the door and assume he's a caroler and start like demanding carols from him and because he's the prime minister knocking on people's doors he's trying not to draw a ton of attention to himself mm-hmm. so he's like okay okay and he starts singing good king wenceslas and then his security officer chimes in like halfway through the first phrase with like the most beautiful like baritone voice ever and then you're, he's just like Um, So it's funny and comedic. It's also been in a Muppet Family Christmas, and it was sung by Gonzo, as well as a Muppet Christmas Carol, and Bean Bunny sings it to Scrooge. Hmm. Um, Two Doctor Who episodes have also referenced the song. In the first episode of the 1975 series Genesis of the Daleks? Dalek? Dalek. I I don't know. You're the Whovian out of us. The Doctor and his companions, Sarah Jane Smith and Harry, find themselves in the middle of a minefield on the Dalek home planet, Scarrow. The Doctor turns to them and says, follow me and tread in my footsteps. Sarah Jane looks at Harry and remarks, good King Wenceslas. And in the 2007 Christmas special entitled Voyage of the Damned, an alien tour guide on board an alien spaceship replica of the Titanic, which first off is a whole different problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um... The tour guide mistakenly believes that good King Wenceslas is the current monarch of the United Kingdom while explaining Earth history. Ah. He is incorrect. Um, Also, in the Discworld book Hogfather, written by Terry Pratchett, the carol is slightly twisted during a scene when death, while acting as the Hogfather, encounters a king trying to give a beggar his feast as an act of charity, with death criticizing the king's actions as simply wanting to be praised on Hog's Watch. Oh, Hogswatch Knight, as he has never shown any concern for the beggar before, nor will do so in the future, forcing the king out and leaving the beggar with the plainer food that is nevertheless more to his liking. It has also appeared in episodes of Phineas and Ferb, The Simpsons, Will and Grace, The Big Bang Theory, and Hogan's Heroes. So now you know just who the heck King Wenceslas was. I guess I do. And you had zero context for it, so that made it even more difficult. Right. (laughs) I guess this was, you know, a dive into things that we don't know, so... I did something you don't know. <laughs> yeah. I like it. All right. So that was me. Now are we going to hop in this TARDIS and blast off into the future? Okay, Whovian. <laughs> so I'm also going to pull a Kylie this time and Uh-oh. not talk about my topic right away. <laughs> so my topic is eventually going to be about one of my favorite things, card games. Oh, no. But before we catch up to... This week's date, let's get some history that leads up to my topic in card games. So it's kind of a big card game history. I'm a little concerned. 
So our origin story takes place at the earliest known mention of the card game Primero back in 1526. We just saw a movie called Promare. Yes. Is it related? No. Oh, okay. I mean, eventually it will maybe be a little related, but <laughs> anyways, um, Primero was a game either created by the Italians or the Spanish. No one knows, apparently. <laughs> um, I'm inclined to say Spanish based off of all the other card games that I saw generated after Primero. Maybe. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, and it was played with a 40-card deck, had four to six players, and some money thrown around for betting. The cards that were played in the deck were, in lowest to highest points, were face or court cards at 10 points, which was really strange to me that they were the least points. Oh. Yeah, so all the, all the different face cards were 10 points, which was the least amount of points. Interesting. There were twos, which were 12 points, threes, 13 points, fours, 14 points, five, 15 points, aces for 16 points. Sixes for 18 points. Wait a second. <laughs> and sevens for 21 points. Can they count? I don't know <laughs> how this order happened, but that was the order. It looks like, it sounds like someone just kind of dropped a deck of cards and went, that's going to be, as I pick them up, is just going to be how many points they're worth. And then it was just like a drunken drop. Yeah, I don't know. Um, this is one of the earlier card games. I'm not sure if it's like the earliest card game, but it's the earliest one related to the thing that I eventually want to talk about. Fair enough. So much like poker, the game was played by collecting cards in a hand that made predetermined win conditions, and the fifth card was used to determine tiebreakers. So the hands in Primero were from best to worst. I guess I should have done this the other way to just match. <laughs> um, a chorus, which was four of a kind. A fluxus, or flucius, which is all cards of the same suit, so a flush. Okay. Um, supremus, which or also called 55, which was the highest possible score among three of a kind or, or three different cards. So that would be the aces for 16 points, the sixes for 18 points, and a seven for 21 points. They add up to 55. Oh, okay. So that was the highest supremus you could get. The primero, which is the second to worst hand. So why but is the it... game is named after That's it? counterintuitive. <laughs> a little bit. I, I, I don't know why that was a choice. Um, which was one card from every suit, which is the opposite of a flush. Mm-hmm. Um, which I find kind of funny that we ended up dropping that one in modern poker games. Because it's just the opposite of a flush. I thought yeah. that would be kind of convenient. Um, and then numerous, which is just two or three cards of the same suit who points are totaled to determine the score. Okay. So if you just have like a random hand of like a three, a two, a five, <laughs> and a six, they would just total those and that's how many points you would get. So basically how your grandmother plays poker. Yeah, anyways. Where she just collects everything and then lays it down and goes, I don't know. And then we end up finding out that she has like royal straight flushes or some <laughs> bullshit. She either has absolutely nothing or like or wins. the best thing ever. Yep. So there aren't any further written rules for the earliest known version of the game, but we did at least know that royalty was very fond of betting on the game. That sounds uh, about right. Such as Henry VIII, who mm. regularly played with his brother-in-law, according to Shakespeare, and Henry VII, who had notes and bills that he paid to people after losing the game. <laughs> Oops. Yep. So it was just, like, written down as, like... I owe you. Prof profits for card game or whatever. Uh-huh. Um... The game eventually fell out of favor as it made way for many new card games based on itself, one of which was called Ombre. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say poker. <laughs> nope. So ombre came about before 1660, and we can assume that from a publication in England that was titled The Royal Game of Ombre in the, at the request of honorable persons. Okay. Ombre was played by dealing out cards to each player, and then all the players would bid to be the player that can determine the type of trump card for the round. Which I thought was really huh. interesting. One person gets to choose what the yeah. the trumping hand is. Interesting. Yep. So the highest bidder, so you would start your bidding before you start playing, but you would already know what you have in your hand. Okay. Um, the highest bidder would become the ombre, or the man, <laughs> and the other two players would become their opponents. Okay. So it was the ombre versus everyone else. So it's kind of like that person becomes the dealer, like, Yeah, in a kind way. of. Yeah. So once the bidding for the ombre was decided, the ombre then makes a second bid, this time in the form of how risky they want to play their hand. <laughs> the three bids at this stage are called Entrada, Vuelta, and Solo. Entrada yeah. is the least risky way for the ombre to play, as they get to declare their trump card, and they get to discard for cards from their hand and draw new cards. Oh, nice. Yep. The Vuelta is... they If they were to pick the Vuelta the ombre then turns over the top card of the deck, and that becomes the trump card, but they still get to discard or and draw new cards. Oh, okay. So that's the second risky one. Okay. And then the least risky, no, the most risky, <laughs> was the solo, which the ombre gets to choose the trump card, but does not get to discard or draw any new cards. Okay. And I, and I think in all of these, the two opponents get to discard and draw new cards. Okay. So wait, w wouldn't you want the solo though? Because if you get to choose the trump card, but you don't get to try and make your hand better. Like the other ones is you're picking a trump, and then you're making your hand better. Oh, this one okay. is you're giving Sorry. up the right to make your hand better. All right, my brain is thinking a singular trump card, not a hand. No, it's it was weird. There was like trump plays. Okay. Yeah. So I was actually just gonna get into that. So the card ranking this games were really strange. Um, first of all, the black aces were considered permanent trumps, and the top three trumps in the game were called matadors or estuches. Um, the highest trump was the ace of spades or the spadie. The second highest was either a black two or a red seven mm. called the manie. And then the ace of clubs was the basto. And those were the those were always the high trump cards. I like how it's a two or a seven. A black two or a red well, yes. seven. But so like not both. Yeah. Either or. Well, maybe both, because oh. like they're both trump cards, but they're ranked at the same level. So like a black two is equivalent to a red seven, I guess. Fair enough. And then uh when the when the red suit is a trump, then everything like if the ombre picks the red suit to be a trump then everything mm -hmm. kind of like shifts around and like there there's different orders for the value of the cards based on the trump that's picked oh. so if the trump is black then it's the spadie the ace of spades a two, a black two then the basto which is the ace of clubs then king queen jack seven six five four three then if the suit is red, then it's still the spidier, but then it's the red seven, then the basto. Then the punto, which is the ace of hearts or the ace of diamonds, then king, queen, jack, and then it goes the other way where it's two, three, four, five, six. That sounds so complicated. Yep. Oh my goodness. If the trump is a 
plain black suit. I couldn't find out what this meant. It's uh, King Jack, uh, King Queen Jack seven six five four three two. And if it's a plain red suit, then you just add the you add an ace between the jack and the numbers, and then the numbers go the other way. So it's King Queen Jack Ace two three four five six seven. Oh. I don't know how people would play this. My it, brain hurts just thinking about it. Yeah, it, it seems like it was like really complicated to pick a like winning hand. Well, I mean, if it was like nobles and people of leisure playing this game, it makes sense. It would have super complicated rules because they didn't really have anything else. Like they weren't do, yeah. really doing a whole ton all the time. So I guess if they were sitting down to play cards, they had time to play. So. Mm-hmm. So fun fact: Ombre is a direct ancestor to Euchre. And Euchre is the first game to feature a Joker card. And then fun fact within the fun fact is the Joker was originally the highest trump card before being demoted to that extra card in the deck. That poor Joker. Yep. So the first iterations of Euchre, maybe even now, I I haven't played Euchre before. I think I played it like once and I don't remember how to play. Yeah, but the first iteration at least, the Joker was actually the best card you could have. Nice. Good for him. Mm -hmm. We're going to pretend nothing happened. (laughs) So anyways, Ombre spawned a lot of games in its own right, specifically led to a great boom of gambling that was very un- unappreciated by the government in Japan. I bet. <laughs> yep. So there's the only other tie-in from Promare to Primero. Japan. Right. Japan is where I'm going with this. All right. So we also learned from its travels to Japan that Ombre's earliest record is not 1660 in England, but actually 1549. As oh. a missionary named Francis Xavier brought a pack of cards from his trip from Portugal to Japan. Uh, it was also kind of odd because in this account, it said that there were 48 cards in the deck rather than the normal 40. Uh-huh. And if it came from Portugal, I'm unsure if it was a Spanish set of ombre or a Portuguese set of... Um, I didn't write it down, but I'm trying to remember the name. <laughs> Is it one that we play? It's like Volatere in oh. Portuguese. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they're, right. they're the same game. They have different names. So I'm not sure if this guy brought a pack of ombre cards or the Portuguese version, but he came from Portugal to Japan and brought them a pack of cards, and that was their first introduction to card gambling. All right. Yeah. So very quickly, the games ended up fueling massive amounts of gambling, and the <laughs> Tokugawa shogunate banned the game Oops. and banned private betting on the game. Oops. So some clever unknown gambler decided that the pl- that Playing cards are not illegal, so he's just going to make <laughs> different playing cards to get around the ban. So basically, just that game was illegal. Right. And whatever else you did was fine. It wasn't even the game was illegal. It was the playing cards and the betting on the playing cards. So all he had to do was not change bet. the playing cards, <laughs> and then he could bet on them again. Ah, See, I was just going with don't gamble, but... All right, your way works too. Yeah, um, so that game was called Unsun Karuta. Um, So it was a deck developed in the late 17th century and ended up having five suits of 15 ranks each for a total of 75 cards. So he did also add cards to make it more different. Yeah, that's a lot of cards. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We have 52 now, right? Yes. So um, a bunch of them were, there there were six six different ranks of face card, um, they kept dragons, um, but the Portuguese Ooh. deck used to use dragons as their aces, but they would change depending on the um, Trump suit, just like in Ombre. And this new game made them their own separate Trump cards, so they that's how they got like an extra category of cards was by making the, the dragon a different type of Trump card. Ah. 
Um, and it's still played in quite a few different districts to this day. So the game also was uh, held over a lot. Mm. The game also preserved a lot of the different rules from Ombre, but also kept in some very archaic rules um, that were considered old at this point. Hmm. And one of them, I, I didn't realize, um, a lot of these rules also applied to tarot cards, which I like, didn't realize tarot cards were originally a gambling game. Oh, no. And were not originally about divining past, presents, and futures. Oh, no. Tarot cards were originally also for gambling. Don't tell Lewis. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the origination of tarot cards, not... Interesting. Yeah. It, it was All right. a similar game to Ombre and Euchre and Unsun Karuta and... Yeah. That is very fun information. Yeah, I I did not know that. I did not expect to find that information. <laughs> so eventually, Unsung Karuta was also banned, and many more followed in its place. Sounds about right. <laughs> um, just more people kept recoloring cards, changing the deck structure a little bit, but for the most part remained the original game Ombre. Basically, it goes to show how hard it is to get rid of gambling. <laughs> yes. Um, that was until the Japanese government decided it couldn't keep up with banning each new card game. Smart. So they decided to create a legal card game. And I was just sitting there thinking that this is crazy because they could have just outlawed all card games instead of continuing to outlaw the card game that pops up. <laughs> I'm not sure I why mean, they yes. didn't chose that route, but they didn't. Probably at this point they were so far in of just banning them that doing a blanket ban would seem like a cop-out. Yeah, I, I just don't know what it was. Um, and, like... People didn't, once the government decided, okay, we're going to allow a card game, people didn't really want to play it because they had been <laughs> just banning card games so frequently <laughs> that card games just kind of, you know, rise and f fell out of popularity in Japan. Yeah, no one wanted to get their hopes up to play a game and really like it and, yeah, and then to have, have it go get away. banned. Yeah. Um, I feel that. <laughs> so anyways, the game that the government ended up creating was called Hanafuda. Hanafuda was designed not to be betted on. It was designed to incorporate more Japanese transitions into Western playing cards, because remember, all of their playing cards came from Europe, essentially. Um, and they tried to make the matches unpredictably long or short, and that means that the matches lasted anywhere from 10 minutes to 3 hours. <gasps> Ugh, so, it's, like when we play, it's like when I play Magic. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it when you like play decade. Magic. It takes like a decade. So yeah, they, that's how they tried to get it so that it wasn't uh, easy to bet on. Um, Hanafuda was also the first of the games to completely remove a numbering system on card faces. Oh. Instead, the game was about matching picture styles. Oh. Yep. So, like, that memory game where you flip everything over and have to remember where it is. Kind of, but you don't have to remember. It, oh, it's wow. just about matching pictures, which is a very, like, Japanese thing to do is to Fair. look at common shapes and common stuff and match them together. That's That's part of the... The traditional Japanese influence that they put into the card game. Thanks for making me feel like a jerk about my joke about children's games. It's fine. <laughs> Wait, why? Because <laughs> I was joking about it being like a kid's game. And you're like, well, actually, Japanese thing. And I'm like, no, now I feel like a jerk. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, they, they always do stuff in, like, harmony. Like, that's, that's like, a, that a lot sense, of their games yeah. are based on. So, like, they, I mean, they, they don't actually consider Hanafuda to be, or I didn't see that they considered Hanafuda to be a strategy game. Mm -hmm. It's more of a luck-based game. Mm. So I, I don't think they cared that it was not a strategy either. Because what they wanted to do is make it so you didn't bet on it. Fair. Um, 
So another change was instead of four suits with 12 values, Hanafuda ended up making 12 months with four types of pictures in each. So they switched up the ratios. Um, Almost all of the months consisted of two basic cards, a ribbon card, which was a basic card with a ribbon over it, (laughs) and then a special card, which looked similar to the basic cards, but had um, just some special drawing on it. And it could be a wide variety of things. This was true for all except November, which was weird as heck because its basic its basic card <laughs> was a ribbon card. Wait a second. And then its next card was a card with lightning. The next card was a card with a swallow on it, and then the last card was a card with a rain man, an umbrella, and a frog. I like the frog, but that's not how that game's that's not how that's supposed to work. Yeah, it was the only one that was really strange compared to the other ones. <laughs> uh, the other months were mostly thematic and were based on uh, mostly plants like flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, so January was matsu, which are pine trees. Uh, February was ume, which is plum blossoms. March is sakura, which are cherry blossoms. Mm. April were fuji, which is wisteria. Ooh. May was ayame, which is irises. June is botan, or peonies. Uh, July was hagi, which is brush clover, or bush clovers. August is suzuki, which is suzuki grass. That one was the only one that, like, carried over from Japanese. <laughs> um, September was kiku, which is chrysan- chrysanthemums. October... Chrysanthemum. Chrysanthemum. Meh. October was momiji, which are maples. November... I guess ended up having a little bit of a theme in the background because it was labeled as Yanagi, and then I looked at the pictures closer, and there was a willow tree in each of them. Okay, well, so like a willow. Yep, right. so it was willow, but it was like easily the standout of all of the cards. It just didn't fit the normal <laughs> thing that was going on there. And then December was Kiri, which are Polonia. Oh, I see the word. Paul-lo-nia. I don't know what kind of flower that is, but they're... I don't either. It, it, on the cards, it was a really small bush that had, like, three flowers popping out of it, and they hmm. looked like uh, like purple pansies. Huh. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what those are. I don't, I don't know what a polonia is. But yeah, again, all these had, were themes. None of them had numbers, and the focus was on image coordination, and you would assign points for completing months or having all of the ribbon cards... There were some ribbons that had writing on them, so you would get points for having all the ribbons with writing. Um, having certain special cards, like if you have most of the animal cards, which there's some of the special cards at the end had animals on them. Pandas? No, there wasn't a oh. panda. There was a crane, and there was um, the rain man with the frog. Oh, right, There right, was right. a boar. There was a phoenix. Nice. Yeah, so there was, if you had the, you get different points for all of those different combos. Um so the most popular game I could find that uses Hanafuda cards is called Koi Koi. <laughs> okay. uh, point values get assigned to different card types, and you play with a hand of eight cards, and then there are eight cards that are face up on the table between you and your opponent, who also has a hand of eight cards. Mm-hmm. You take turns by matching a card from your hand to one of the face up cards. If you do, then you flip another card over from the deck onto the face up pile, and if you can match that one, then you can also keep that card. And it ends up leaving a, a hole in the yeah. eight on the ground. Um, so the first person to end up completing four sets wins the round, unless they shout, Koi Koi! Um, which means that they will end up playing until they make another set of cards. So normally the round would be over, but you can choose for it not to be over, even if you've already won. Um, Is but there a benefit to doing that? You get more points in a round. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 
You have to be careful, though, because if you call out Koikoi and your opponent makes a match before you, they not only win the round, but they also get all of your points that you've racked oh. up at that point. Oh. Yep. So now we're finally caught up to what sparked me to talk about all of these Lord. cards. Um, it was a long road, but we got there. Yeah, and there's not much to go after this. Oh, but <laughs> I just saw it and wanted to do like a history of cards. Cause, all right, fair enough. Because I read the, the this thing that I'm about to read now, and then I saw it was based on this. And then I read that card game, you went and down it was a based on that. Hole. Yeah, and I just kept going down to find like the origin of this style of card game. Deep down the rabbit hole. Yep. We're caught up to... What sparked me to talk about this, which is the first major company to start producing Hanafuda cards. Because remember, the um, government outlawed cards, yeah. and eventually they let them in, so someone had to start making them. <laughs> um, it was founded in 19, or sorry, 1889 by Fusajiro uh, Uchi, and the company made hand-painted cards on thin slices of mulberry tree bark. So they were, like, really fancy. Nice. Yeah. Um, they didn't sell much because people had gotten used to cards being banned. No. And the company eventually got their turnaround when the prominent Japanese gang, the Yakuza, took to the cards with a passion. Whoopsies. They loved the cards. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and they did use them for gambling. Just, oh, boy. <laughs> I think they took it as a challenge because the government was like... To see how to gamble it. Yeah. Because yeah. the government was like, you can't gamble with this game. It's too unpredictable. It's too random chance. Like, you can't gamble on it. And they were like, watch oh, us. Watch me. <laughs> So they still gambled on it. It was one of the most popular gambling games for the Yakuza. Um, Yikes. So that's how Nintendo Copai, known as just Nintendo Today, got its start on September 23rd of 1889. Oh, wow. It started as a card game? It started as a card game company. Wow. All, all the way back in the 1800s. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either. That's um, really funny. So since then, Nintendo has had the most luck sell selling the Hanafuda cards with both special Mario theme sets and nah. Disney theme sets. Ooh, yeah. Yep. And they still produce the Hanafuda cards today, mostly just for Japan. Um, and made a version of Koi Koi as recent as for the Nintendo DS. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, if we get a DS. Wait. We have DSs. We have DSs. Yep. I knew that. I'm really tired. Um, <laughs> if we go to Japan, we should see if we can get some of those cards. Yeah. I, that would be a really fun souvenir to have. Yeah, I really kind of want the Hanafuda cards because they're really, really pretty, neat. too. Yeah, they sound it. Yeah. So Nintendo currently doesn't actually profit from the Hanafuda cards anymore. It's just a labor of love. Yep. Aww. So they just keep making them to pay respect to their origins and the origins of one of the most popular playing cards in Japan. That's so cute. Yeah. Um, Hanafuda also is common in Korea and Hawaii, and the translation of the games there generally means something like flower fight, which I thought was funny, <laughs> but appropriate. <laughs> flower power. And yeah, I really want a Hanafuda set now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we'll have to go sooner rather than later. Yeah. So that was my stuff. Nice. So time for call to action. We need you people to rate and review, please. Yes, please. We really appreciate. We would really appreciate it. I guess is the proper tense. We will really appreciate. Yeah, it. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> yep. Anyways, you guys can visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Hatfoot History. You can visit us on Patreon at Halfwit Pod. Um, you can send us an email with suggestions, comments, complaints. <laughs> we haven't gotten any complaints yet. No so complaints that. yet. Um, <laughs> Or topics that you want us to do at halfwitpod at gmail.com and website. our website <laughs> at www.halfwit-history.com. Yes. Fun fact time? I think it's fun fact time. You can't peek at my oh, fun wait, fact. Oh, wait, no. Go Hold away. on. Oh. <laughs> 
And thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. Yes. Find him on SoundCloud. He's in our show notes. Yes. Do that. So, fun facts. Yeah. Uh, when is your fun fact? In 1906. You go first. Okay, so September 25th of 1906, Leonardo Torres Quevado successfully tra- successfully demonstrates the telekino at Bilbao before a great crowd, guiding a boat from the shore, which is considered to be the birth of remote controls. So he remote wow. controlled the boat to the shores in 1906. Wow, that's a lot earlier than I would have expected. Yeah. Nice. Cool. That, that was, was a really, fun. That was a really weirdly constructed sentence. It was a very strangely constructed sentence. It, was, it took me a minute. Yeah, it was weird. I didn't think it was that weirdly constructed when I first read it, and then I read it out loud, and I'm like, oh, man, that sounds weird. I've definitely run across that a couple times when I'm, like, doing notes. Yeah. Um, if something has a lot of information, sometimes I'll copy and paste a sentence, mm-hmm. and then you, you're you reading it, and it's like, okay, cool, sounds great, and then you say it out loud, and you're like, what happened here? <laughs> what did I write? This is a train wreck. Um, anyway, okay. So my fun fact is from September 29th, 1977. The Star Wars theme Cantina Band by Mecco hits number one. I can't believe that hit number one for any reason. It's catchy as heck, but geez. It is. It's my favorite song from that. Well, anyways, uh, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope to see you again next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>